Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. We pray that you'd be honored in it as we spend some time together this morning looking at your word. Pray that you would be exalted, and Lord, that we would be blessed uh, from what you have revealed. Lord, that our our thinking would be strengthened and, and even fortified and guarded so that we wouldn't be we wouldn't be tempted or prone to have our thinking conformed to worldly thinking, but Lord, that we would be transformed as our mind is renewed and we are aligning ourselves intentionally with your thinking. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you should have gotten a, a handout off the table when you came in. If you did not, go ahead and grab that. And we're going to start just looking at our laminated sheet again this morning. We'll spend just a little bit of time, kind of the roadmap for this morning. We're going to spend a little bit of time uh, looking through this, and then we are going to have what what we're calling a, a discipline devotion, which is a devotion on one of the disciplines, heart, home, ministry, and uh, and then we're going to look at the church this morning and what God has to say about the church. So if you have that laminated sheet, you can uh, pull it out if you'd like, or you can look at it, and just want to highlight some dates. Uh, Abraham, what was the time roughly that Abraham lived? 2166 BC, exactly. And then uh, the Exodus takes place about 1446. We get uh, a period of 335 years with the judges, and then Israel wants a king, but they want a king like all the other nations. And so they uh, choose Saul. And Saul reigns, and then David reigns, and then Solomon reigns, and then we have the division of the kingdom at 931. That's helpful. These these kind of uh, bullet points on the timeline are good to remember. The division of the kingdom, you've got the northern tribes, uh, which are referred to as Israel, and then you've got the southern tribes, which consist of Benjamin and Judah, which... Uh, is, re- is referred to at times depending on timing and book and context as either Judah or Israel, but, but most commonly Judah, uh, at least until the Assyrian captivity in 722. And then uh, the Assyrian captivity, that is when which set of tribes was taken into captivity? The northern tribes or the southern tribes? Judah or Israel? The northern tribes Israel, exactly. Then you've got the Babylonian captivity, uh, which started the first phase of that was in 605 BC. So go ahead and turn over your worksheet. You should be looking at this. The key events of the Old Testament on your laminated page. We're going to start at the top left corner with creation. Then you have the fall. And what we find by the time you get into Genesis 5 and 6 is that Man's heart was set on evil continuously. And so God brought the flood as a means of judgment. Uh, The flood takes place. You get to uh, the end of the flood and God tells the remaining survivors to disperse and inhabit and multiply. And what do they do? They all join together and seek to make a name for themselves by building the Tower of Babel. So what does God do? He disperses them. However, Shortly after that, he gives a promise to one man to become a nation, to bless other nations. Who's that man? Abraham. And what time are we at at that point? 21. Good. And, uh, and so he tells him he's going to become a nation. 
And yet that nation needs what? Three key ingredients. What are those three key ingredients? People, constitution, and land. Exactly. Through divine providence, uh, Abraham's family, Jacob and his family, uh, are captive in Egypt. God uses that to grow them exponentially from a uh, small number. I think it's either 70 or 90 uh, to 2 million in uh, 400 years. And so then God brings them out through a series of plagues, 10 plagues. They cross the Red Sea. At this point, they've got their 2 million people. And then they go to Mount Sinai where God gives them the law, which is going to be their constitution as a people. They rebel. They make a, a golden calf in the image and they call it Yahweh, which is interesting. They make a graven image of Yahweh himself. And so they are uh, punished through delaying in the wilderness for 40 years. That generation doesn't get to enter into the promised land. They cross the Jordan. They're told to divide and conquer. And so they enter into the land. Now they have their land and they are the nation of Israel with their people, their constitution and their own land. However, God tells them to occupy fully, but they fail to follow that instruction. And they enter into a time of judges where they get into cycles of sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and silence. It gets so bad to where there's total corruption among the priesthood, Eli and his sons. At this point, there's no king. They're dissatisfied in that. No capital, no priesthood, no land, no theocracy. And so they cry out, we want a king. This isn't going well for us. And the solution isn't for us to obey Yahweh. The solution for us is to have a king instead of Yahweh so that we would be a nation like all the other nations who has a strong ruler. So they appoint Saul. Saul didn't have a regard for the ark. He was disobedient to God and disregard for God's specific instructions on how to care for his people. So what did God do? He brought David and appointed David. David had a heart after God's heart, even in his sinfulness or despite his sinfulness. The first thing he did was he went and got the ark, had regard for it. He was obedient to God's instruction, which gives way to Solomon, who had a divided heart. God brought peace and prosperity to the land, but he instructed him to avoid three different things. What were those things that he was to not go accrue for himself great quantities? Yep, exactly. Horses, wives, and money, which essentially is uh, military power, formal allegiance, or, or um, uh, what's the word? Like uh, association with foreign countries. You'd marry, intermarry into foreign countries to create alliances. Thank you. Um, and then money, power, you have the resources. The result of that, as Solomon did that, was a divided kingdom. The kingdom split in 931 BC, and you've got Israel with the 10 tribes. There were no good kings, and they're taken into the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC. Judah, consisting of the tribe of Benjamin and Judah, had some good kings. However, they're taken into the Babylonian captivity in 605 but God promises a future for them. God is in control. He's not finished with them. He'll provide atonement and a future kingdom. Why exile in Babylon? Well, it was a means of curing the gross idolatry that existed in Israel through grosser idolatry that existed in Babylon. And through this, God gave them a respect for the law, hope for the Messiah. 
they enter back into the land and uh, Ezra takes the lead in rebuilding the temple pursuing the purity of the people and Nehemiah takes the lead in rebuilding the walls in preparation for the Messiah and that's that sheet all right couple quick comments or questions uh, if I wanted to help somebody understand the importance of bringing your heart and even desiring God's word as a believer where might I look Someone nineteen, great, yes, absolutely. Worship, worship in the in the Word all throughout Psalm one nineteen. Just put them on the whole thing. It's just like a fire hose of uh, great instruction from God's Word. First Peter two, we see the the actual command to crave or long or desire for God's Word as well. Uh, what about what about the reality that God made him sin, referring to Christ? Second Corinthians five, what uh, what doctrine we talked about it? Just I mean, we went through that new man worksheet really quick last time we were together. But when we talk about Christ taking our sin and us receiving Christ's righteousness, what doctrines are 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 uh, expressed in those realities? Yep. So imputed righteousness from Christ expiation our sin being taken from us and given put on Christ excellent okay we can turn to your outlines we're going to shift gears you should be on semester one week three discipline two, the home and then devotion and that's one that's the first page of our outline for this morning so I'll give you guys just a second And if you're there, go ahead and open up your Bible to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. What we're going to do for the next uh, 5 to 10 minutes or so is I really just want to make five observations uh, for us to consider when thinking about our spiritual care for our home. So we're going to make five, five statements of observation as we consider the spiritual care for our home from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. So Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Let's read it, and then we'll just kind of work our way through these observations uh, together. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. We see, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Well, first, the first observation we make is this. Number one, spiritual care for your home starts with spiritual care for your heart. Spiritual care for your home starts, it begins with spiritual care for your heart. 
And if you look at verses four through six again, you see where Yahweh God starts in his instruction for his people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. A direct command for the man of God to love the Lord. And this is wonderful instruction, and it's really profound when you think about what Jesus says is the summary of all the commandments or the greatest commandment, the overarching commandment. And what you see here in Yahweh God giving instruction for the people of Israel, this instruction to love God with everything. With everything. That's where it starts. All instruction is summed up, summed up in that. And this is a direct call for the man of God to pursue the Lord in love with all of who he is. And what immediately follows this instruction? These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And as we step into our homes, we must understand that where our heart is, is where our homes will go. What our spiritual leadership like is like in our home is a reflection of where our heart is. And so spiritual care for your home, it must start with spiritual care for your heart. To direct your family, to direct your wife, to serve your wife, to care for your children, to instruct your children in the way that they should go when you have not instructed your own heart where it should go is, is ultimately a lost cause. To, to have something other than love of God on our hearts and think that instruction toward the love of God would come out is just foolish. So number one, spiritual care for your home starts with spiritual care for your heart. The second observation, number two, my intentional pursuit of the Lord and love for him should extend into my home. So my personal care for my heart, my intentional pursuit of the Lord, and my love for him should extend into my home. Number two, my intentional pursuit of the Lord and love for him should extend into my home. Look at verses five and six again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. There we see the intentional pursuit of the Lord and, and your love for him. The fact that you desire him, this instruction for you that is to be true about the man of God, the, an intentional pursuit in love of the Lord. It should extend to your home. And we see that in verse seven. You shall teach them. These things that I'm commanding you today, they shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit. And he goes on from there. Number three, the third observation, what is true of my heart will be true of my home. We talked about this already, but you see that really highlight at the end of verse six. These things should be on your heart, and then you should teach them is what follow. And again, we see the nature that what are you filling your life with? What are you filling your mind with? What are you filling your heart with? What are you dwelling on? What consumes your thinking? Is it finances? Your retirement accounts? Your investment accounts? 
How are my investments doing? Am, am I going to have enough? Am I going to be able to buy this thing? Is it the next pursuit, the next thing that you want, the next place you want to go, the next promotion you desire? And that's what you're stewing on all the time. Because listen, if that's the case, that reveals what's on your heart and that's going to come out in your home. Or is it the Lord? His goodness. How can I please him? How can I honor him? How can I be faithful? How can I be diligent? And then you walk into your home and you have cultivated a heart of love for the Lord all throughout the day as you're applying yourself to your various responsibilities and tasks and faithfulness so that when you walk in your door at the end of the day, what's on your mind? What's the burden of your heart? It's a continuation of what you have been living up to that point that day, which is how can I please the Lord in my spiritual care for my family? What is true of my heart will be true in my home. Number four, leading your home requires diligent, diligence, excuse me. Leading your home requires diligence. So we have number one, spiritual care for your home starts with spiritual care for your heart. Number two, my intentional pursuit of the Lord and love for him should extend into my home. Number three, what is true of my heart will be true in my home. And number four, leading your home requires diligence. You shall teach them diligently. This isn't a one and done mentality. I told them they should know. No, diligence, intentional diligence. Teach them diligently to your sons. What does that look? Talk, talk of them. When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Leading your home requires diligence. Guys, when you, when you come home at the end of the day or when you step into your household and you've done your other tasks, it's game time. It's go time, right? The, the best players ever in the NBA, and you may have heard me talk about this before, the best players ever in the NBA aren't the ones who shine for the first three and a half quarters and then say, you know what, I'm really tired. I know the game is on the line, but have somebody else take over. I'm just exhausted. It's been a long game, really long. I've played 32 minutes. I, I don't want to play the last three. No, the, the best players in the NBA are the ones who come through in clutch time. And yet so often we think when we come home, the game is over. And now it's me time. I can relax. I'm going to watch TV. I'm going to do whatever hobby I have or uh, go, go do this or that. And the reality is that's clutch time. We got to be at our best at that point when we step into our homes in our humble service and direction towards the Lord. So leading your home requires diligence. And then lastly, pointing your family to the Lord is comprehensive, not compartmentalized. Pointing your family to the Lord is comprehensive. It must be comprehensive, not compartmentalized. That's number five. Pointing your family to the Lord is comprehensive, not compartmentalized. And we see that in the expression of how Moses puts forward this instruction for the kind of care that's to be done in regards to the Lord. This instruction that he's receiving, that he's to teach diligently. It's when you sit and when you walk and when you lie down and when you rise up. And listen, 
Family devotions should be a part of every household. You should be leading your family spiritually. But family devotions shouldn't be the extent of your spiritual care for your household. The Lord should be on your heart as you're driving to the grocery store with your kids in the back. As you're coming home from an event and you see a sunset, talk to your kids about the creator of that sunset and the beauty of God's creation. Uh, There were many times where my kids and I would be at the store and somebody might not charge me for something or give me the wrong change. And there's an opportunity in each of those moments to say, hey, what, what could I have done? You could have kept the money. Would they have known about it? No. Who would have known about it? The Lord. Yeah, the Lord's always there. And is $2.50 something that's worth sinning against God? No. What if it was $250? What if it was $2,500? I mean, just sweet ways to have those kinds of conversations. Not that I got every one. There were thousands of opportunities that I missed. But the point here is, Use opportunities. Let it be comprehensive. Let it be just saturated throughout all of our lives as we seek to care for our homes diligently with the Lord. And listen, you need to teach as much by example as you do by prescription. Um, What does that mean? You don't just step into your house and tell your family all the ways they should fear God and obey him and then not fear God and obey him yourself. Be the chief servant. Be the one who loves your family most diligently most consistently in your spiritual care. Any questions, comments on that before we transition? Thoughts, observations? Good, I I really didn't want you to have any questions. I just wanted to drink a coffee, so that was excellent, though. I'm joking. You should ask questions, make observations. Okay, we're going to spend the rest of our time here until right around uh, 7 o'clock looking at ecclesiology, which is the theological term for the study of the church. And I want to start by just talking about the church itself. The the Greek word in the New Testament for church is is really where we get ecclesiology from. It's ekklesia from ek and kaleo, meaning called out ones, called out ones or set apart ones or um, or, or an assembly of ones, a grouping of ones. And prior to being used to reference the church, it was primarily used to reference just an assembly of people, a gathering or a grouping of people. And as we consider the church, it's important to reference the fact that we see the church universal, but we predominantly see the church local, the local church. And, the, and some have argued over the years, over the decades, that the church is universal at the expense of the local church. And that's just not what we see put out in Scripture. There is a local church very explicitly demonstrated from Scripture. In fact, the word church occurs 120 times in the New Testament, and really only 15 to 17 of those refer to the universal church uh, or could refer to the universal church. Um, There's a couple where it kind of depends on what you take there, but... 15 to 17 refer to the universal church. 103 to 105 refer to specific local churches. And even the universal references are used by analogy to the local assembly. It's still a, a, a reference to 
the the gathering of local believers who are connected to one another. And so look, just to look at a couple examples, turn to Colossians 1. If you were to try to give a definition of what we mean when we talk about the universal church, you might say it this way. The church or the assembly of believers, as it refers to the universal church, is all believers spiritually united in Christ, scattered or gathered. All believers, all believers spiritually united in Christ, scattered or gathered. And in Colossians 1, we see this reference to the church as a whole, the universal church. In verse 18, Paul says, he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And even there, when you see a broad statement, he's not limiting Christ as the head to only the Colossian church. He's talking to the church in Colossae, in this letter, he's giving them instruction, and Christ is certainly the head of the church in Colossae, but Christ is also head to the church in Ephesus and Philippi and so forth. And so even in these references to the church universal, we also see the reality that this truth remains for the local church as well. So turn to 1 Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. So there we see a reference in, in a broad sense to Christ as the head of the church. Does somebody have it? First Thessalonians 1 1. If you want to read it, go for it. So there we see to the church of the Thessalonians. And here there's the, the reference to a specific church, the church of the Thessalonians or the assembly of the Thessalonians. And what we find as we consider these things is that ecclesia, the, the word for church, it's never used in the New Testament for a building. It's not used for a denomination. It's not used for a state church. This is the people of God post-Pentecost who have been saved by God, brought into a local assembly or a connected gathering. And by local assembly, we don't mean a local building, like the assembly hall, right? It's not that they were brought into a building and that made them the church, but they're brought into a connected fellowship with each other as an assembly of people, of people who gathered and gather and are connected to one another for the building up of one another. So the church is the elect by God. These are referred to as saints, the faithful, believers, disciples, Christians, and brethren. As we make our way through scripture, we find various pictures of the church expressed, uh, words that are used to depict what the church is and what the church is to be about. And you have a list there on your outline, pictures of the church. And we see the church referred to as the body or the body of Christ, as a building, and yet not as a building in regards to a physical building, 
but we are connected as a building one in another, uh, one to another. A temple, a bride, a flock, vine and branches, and so on. Now, when we see, when we talk about the church, the church is definitely something that didn't always exist. In fact, it was a, a mystery prior to Christ, and yet Christ even spoke of it in Matthew 16. So turn to Matthew 16. We see the church is coming. Jesus knows it, this assembly of, of believers that are going to be connected to one another under Christ's care and, and Christ's reign and Christ's grace. And in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, or there's that word, ecclesia, I will build my assembly, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And then just a couple chapters to the right, you actually see specific instruction for the assembly and how they're to care for one another in regards to sin in chapter 18 before the church is really even established at this point. Jesus gives proactive, specific care for how the believer is to care for one another. And it's just, it's just assumed that you're part of an assembly. We see that in verse 15, he starts, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens, you've won him. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more witnesses with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the assembly, the group of believers. And it's interesting. They would have understood the word assembly of believers and knew it in the context, but the church has not been established yet. We see that in Acts 1 and on, Acts 1 and 2. So the inception of the church takes place as Christ ascends, he establishes his church. And then we see the church being brought together as both Jews and Gentiles under the grace of God. We're jumping around a lot this morning. Hang with me. You can turn to Ephesians 2. I want you guys to see this. We'll start in verse 19. So Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple. Here you see all those references for the church, building, temple, household, so forth, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And Paul is really, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, laid forth the foundation of this is what you were apart from Christ, dead in your transgressions of sins. This is who you are because of Christ. You've been saved by the grace through faith in him, and you've been brought together. And God has brought peace between you and him and God has brought peace between you and one another, which for us who kind of live in the same culture and we look fairly similar, we have the same types of likes and dislikes, we're connected. To, to be brought together to break down dividing wall or barrier or enmity may not carry the same weight as what a Jew and a Gentile would have 
felt hearing these words. To be unified in this way as the Jew who thought they were the people of God and a Gentile who would face major obstacles being brought into the assembly of one who fears Yahweh, even, even despite multitude of instruction in the Pentateuch regarding care for the stranger, the Jews made all sorts of additional requirements and demands for somebody to be brought into their fellowship. And so for a Jew and a Gentile to be told, you're part of the same thing as God's people would have just been jarring. And so this isn't, think of the person who's most like you, who likes the same things, who was brought up the same way, and hey, you have peace with that person. Think of the person who has a totally different worldview, totally different priorities, totally different upbringing. Every worldly obstacle to being able to share in fellowship, put it in those categories, and through the gospel, they're made one together at peace with one another because of Christ and because of the love of Christ. So we, we see the church catapulted early in the New Testament, and we find instructions for the church as well. What is the church to be all about? And we have some early examples in Scripture for what the church is about. We see that the church is called to expand, go and make disciples. Take it to where? Jerusalem. Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Exactly. Early examples where there is to be expansion. We are to proclaim this news. We are to not only proclaim it, we're to intentionally go make disciples. Make disciples. How? Going, discipling, teaching them, baptizing them. That's what we're called. Make disciples. And if you look at Matthew 28, which we're going to have the benefit of hearing from Brian Twombly this Saturday on Matthew 28. But the, the primary imperative is make disciples. And there's three participles that really modify that primary command to go make disciples. And it's going, instructing, or teaching, and baptizing. And we're, we're called to do that as the church. We're called to be proactive in our discipleship making and our sharing the gospel and proclaiming the good news of Christ. We also see, and we looked at this in our... Um, early in our Gilbert Bible, before we were even launched, we looked at Acts 4, 40, or 2, 42. Yeah, two, chapter 2, 42, when we see what was taking place from the get-go within the local church, the earliest recording of what the church was about. And we see it there. They were teaching, there was fellowship, there was breaking of bread, and there was prayer. Regular intentional participation in these things. They were gathering regularly, Acts 11, 19 through 30, preaching and teaching and encouraging. There was generous giving, and there was actually sending of individuals for pastoral work, for ministry work. It was really interesting talking with Brian. Tom Tyler and I had a, an opportunity to sit with Brian on um, Tuesday, Tuesday morning, and just hear from him, and it was so sweet. He, he obviously wants to make sure his family is cared for financially, although that didn't seem to be a concern as if it might not happen. Um, and he has a, a longing to be able to be sent well and to be the right kind of man, but when we asked, hey, what, what kinds of things can we do most practically to be a blessing and a, and a, and a help to you? He said, um, pray for more workers. 
seek the Lord of the harvest, that he would provide more workers, that there would be more people to send. There's a tremendous amount, astronomical amount of people that need the gospel in the world. And we either need to be incredibly intentional in our participation here and bringing the gospel in our local communities and building up the local body to be able to send out, or we should be praying, and, and regardless, we should be praying and seeking the Lord. Sh- should I be sent out? What would it look like for me to be sent out? Am I the kind of man who could be sent out? Even if I'm not going to be, even if right here, Gilbert, Arizona, this is my ministry, Gilbert Bible Church, pour myself out, share the gospel, minister to family, minister to neighbors, minister to coworkers, great. We, we, we shouldn't necessarily view these as one better than the other. We need to be just intentional and committed either way. But if that's your ministry and you're not going to be sent, don't let it be for lack of character. Be the right kind of person that whatever ministry the Lord would call you to or lead you to, that you are the right kind of man to go. All right, pastoral epistles. We saw some early examples of the task of the church. Let's talk a little bit about what instruction is for the church in regards to the church. And we won't look at all of these references. We'd be here for several hours. But turn to 1 Timothy 3 because this really lays the framework for us to have an understanding at the weight that these references and these instructions should bear. So 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter three, verse 14, Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that, and there we see those, that, that subordinating conjunction, that's a purpose clause. So he's telling us the purpose so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is, just in case there's any question, the church of the living God, the pillar in support of the truth. Paul writes the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy included, to give specific instructions so that, hey, if I can't get there to tell you in person, you will know how to conduct yourself, how to operate, what to be about, what to emphasize in the household of God. Okay, there are lots of things that churches prop up as what the church should be about. What can we know the church must be about? Read 1 Timothy. There can be a tendency to prop up and elevate all sorts of things and to neglect what's clearly given to God's people for instruction so that they can know. You can know. Gilbert Bible Church, we can know what we're supposed to do and be about. We have freedoms beyond that, certainly. But there's certain things we don't have freedoms regarding. We're called to. This is how we're to conduct ourselves in the household of God. What are some of those things? Well, and you can look at the references. And if you're unfamiliar with some of these things or some of them pop out as as interesting or curious, you should go back. In fact, I would just encourage you, go back and look at these references 
Just look at them. What God's word has to say about what we're to be about. What are God's people to be about in the local assembly? Well, there's to be protection for God's people from false teaching. There's to be prayer for government leaders. There's to be instruction for women, encouragement, discipleship of women. We're to read the word publicly. We're to exhort and teach. We're called to confront sin. Listen, we have a spiritual obligation before the Lord to care for one another where there's sin that's not confessed or repented of. Care for widows. Some are to be ordained for service. There's to be instruction for slaves, instruction for rich. We're to cling to truth, faith, and love in Christ. We're to disciple men. We're to rehearse the gospel. We're to teach holy living. We're to refute and correct false teachings, sniff out wolves, prepare God's people for persecution, continue to teach, reprove, correct, and train with the word, preach the word, do the work of evangelism, appoint qualified leadership, silence rebellious men and false teachers, speak sound doctrine, instruct men and women, encourage godly living, avoid foolish controversies, reject factious people, encourage God's people to meet pressing needs. And the context of those pressing needs, just for clarity of conscience sake, is within the local assembly to serve one another, to care, to meet the needs of one another, to do good. This isn't a call to go buy somebody a a meal who's standing on every street corner. You certainly have the freedom to do that. And that may or may not be a good wise use of your time. But to meet pressing needs doesn't mean we go meet all the pressing needs in the culture and in the society around us. It's actually we have an acute awareness of the needs within our local assembly, and there's a self-giving love for one another that, listen, we care for one one another and make sure that one another is receiving what they need. Any questions on those instructions before we keep moving along? Next, we see instructions for one another's. And we went through a series of these before we launched and as we launched as a, as a church uh, for Gilbert Bible Church. We didn't obviously hit everyone, but there are many instructions here. If you just look through the one another commands of Scripture, what does Scripture tell us that we are to be about as the local assembly of believers who are connected to one another? We have a spiritual obligation to these things. We are to accept one another, admonish one another, be at peace with one another. Be devoted to one another and brotherly love. Be hospitable to one another. And just think about this. You don't get to pick and choose from this list. This isn't like, oh, I like that one. I'm going to be this with people. This is to be our disposition. Believers are called to be this with one another. And accepting one another is huge. And And that's not a, hey, accept me as I am in tolerance over sin that's not repented of. But it's an eager embracing of those who are part of the body of Christ in a drawing in. What what would this look like? You're not going to be selective of who you show love to based off of superficial things. It's not a call to be best friends with everybody in the church. You just can't do that. But it is a call to show indiscriminate love towards everybody in the church. You don't go, this person... They are so annoying. They always do this. They're, it's like my pet peeve how they fill in the blank. And so then you separate yourself intentionally from that. No, accept one another. 
be engaged with one another, love one another, serve one another. Yes, please. So accepting one another is not a call to tolerate error or to agree with falsehood or to endorse somebody else's even preferences. If another church is saying we've got to have uh, food, food house, uh, um, soup kitchen, okay, because we got to feed the homeless, okay, that's certainly permissible for a church to do. They have all the freedom. But if they say, and you need to do it too because look at all the needs, a form of accepting them is not going, well, okay, we'll do it too because we got to accept you. Um, we might love you despite your view that we have to do it. And hey, we're going to do what we can to be an encouragement, but we just don't think that's a wise use of our resources and time to do this. But, but we're not going to speak poorly or slanderously or we're not going to be unloving or you know the, those types of things in, in Romans 15 he's talking to the church in Rome and so that accepting one another is intended specifically for the local assembly and how the body is interacting within the body the principle of love and care and consideration for one another that would come through a an acceptance is is applicable but the reality is is as a local church our first obligation is within this church body and we need to make sure we're being diligent there because if we try to make some sort of formal association with all the churches in the valley and now all the pastors of this church are so consumed with these alliances that we're making with other churches that we neglect the pastoral care for our flock, we, we haven't been faithful to what God's called us to be. Did that answer your question? Or Okay, Tom, did you have any? I'm not sure what the question was. Yep, I just looked at that. I'm like, whoops. It's verse 7, not 17. Can you write that down or text me so that I update the... Romans 15, 7. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Here we, what we're really seeing is this unity brought about by the spirit of Christ that calls us to a, a serving and a care for one another within the local church. Uh, outside of that, uh, does the principles of consideration, service, care apply? Yes, um, we should be those things. But I think oftentimes we can get caught up with trying to link arms and create unity with all those around us. And we actually haven't started where it must start, which is in the local church. And so any 
we are going to be best positioned to partner with or join with or be a blessing to other churches when we're faithful to these things as a church ourselves. It's a it's the same principle of care for your heart before you can step into your home. Step into your home before you step into the church. You, we've got to be faithful here before we think we can get a grip on navigating the complexities and nuances of partnering with other churches. But there is a sweetness in the unity that comes. You can meet with a believer. I mean, I've, I've had this where we've gone to the church in uh, Jupiter, Grace Emmanuel Bible Church, for a Courageous Churchmen Conference and met with those men there. And you've got... The first year, it was a couple hundred, 500 men that you're interacting with and rubbing shoulders with and having meals with. And it is so sweet, the instantaneous unity that's there and love centered on the gospel and like-mindedness about scripture. So, okay, we'll keep, uh, we'll keep moving. A number of one another's, you, it'd be good to read through those for your own heart as well. Just what does God call the church to be about? These, this is specific instruction for how we are to conduct ourselves with each other. I have a quote on page five in, in the pages. We might need to make that a little, it's a little hard to see on the bottom right, but it's the last of the one another's and there's a quote down there. The New Testament knows. Are you guys there? So Smed, Smed uh, this is a quote from him. The New Testament knows nothing of a lone ranger Christian. Christians have been placed by God into the body, the building, the church universal, and that placement is intended by God to be manifest in a local body of believers. There's just no room. How, how would you, I mean, we just looked at several pages of one another commands. How in the world do you accomplish those if you're not part of a local assembly? much less all of the instruction for the church at large regarding spiritual care and instruction and guarding and protection and encouragement and admonishment and so forth. We're called to be part of a local church, to be connected intentionally. Well, what are the, what's the structure of the church that we see put forward in scripture? We see two offices, two formal offices. Both of these are to be held by men and it's the office of elder and the office of deacon. An elder is called to shepherd the flock, to pastor the flock, and we believe that from scripture, uh, elder, pastor, um, shepherd, bishop, whatever, whatever term you want to use, they're all the same office. An elder is a pastor, a pastor is an elder, and an elder is called to shepherd the flock to care for the flock. And there's specific qualifications, spiritual qualifications, character qualifications that God has given. And it's not a scale. It's not something where, hey, if you've got four of the qualifications really well and you're close on some others and there's one that you're deficient in, that man is qualified. No, you, you need to be proficient in each of those. Not perfect. The, the standard isn't perfection. But there needs to be a spiritual maturity and, a, and an exemplary nature in respect to these qualifications that an elder is to possess. And that elder is called to teach, to care, to shepherd, to equip the saints as, uh, as leaders within the church. There's a responsibility there. And there's also deacons. Deacons, likewise, are to have exemplary character. They're to be godly men, capable, and they are to fulfill various tasks within the church for the benefit of the body so that uh, the body both benefits and the elders are freed up to commit themselves to 
ministry of the word and prayer within the church. We have two deacons. We have Sam Pagel and Kenny Sitton, and we have two elders, Tom Ingstead and myself, and we have Tyler Azeltine as an elder intern. The way that our elder internship works is that a man is tested on his character. He's given an application and goes through a series of interviews with the elders. And upon completion of that, an agreement by both the man and the elders, unanimous decision among the elders, he's brought into an internship where he functions as an elder in his responsibilities within the church. However, he does not hold the official office and he does not uh, maintain an official vote where the elders work under unanimity, where both Tom and I have to agree on an issue as we expand and have more elders. Every elder, whether it's two or 11, like what we had at Grace, we all have to be in agreement before we move forward with major decisions for the church. And so it's, it's not a matter of number, it's a matter of principle that there has to be agreement, unanimity among the elders. We wanna be like-minded in the way that we lead and direct the church. And so we labor hard for that. And um, in that internship, Tyler would not have an official vote, although uh, as we did at Grace and as our practices at Gilbert, uh, we certainly want to hear from that man. It's part of his testing. We want to understand how he thinks and how he shepherds and how he participates in those decisions. And in uh, something like nine years of eldering at Grace, and I was observing for at least four years prior to that, I have never seen the elders move forward on an issue past an elder intern. So even when, even though the intern doesn't have a vote, there has always been a, an eagerness to want to hear from that intern, to consider objections, to take them. And I don't, I can't remember an instance where they moved forward when the intern was on one page and everybody else was on another. Can you remember that, Tom? Do you recall? I, I can't remember that. So there, it's a protection for the man. It's a protection for the church. Um, and uh, there's just a, a sweetness there. And yet um, part of our practical application of not being quickly to lay hands on a man and let him first be tested is that elder internship where we see how he operates in that. Yeah. So the question is, is it ever, I'm just for the recording and uh, is it ever advantageous to, to not have the unanimity? So um, yes, is it ever? Uh, what are the biblical principles that drive our thinking in regards to that? Uh, the unity of mind and the benefit for the sheep of an elder board who's completely unified to protect the church from factions or um, schisms that might arise. If, if, we, if there's differences on the other, I think we should do this. I think we should do this. That can, that can very quickly escalate in a way that's unhelpful for the body, but to be unified as a body, to make every effort to maintain unity in the bond of peace, we think that that starts at the elder level. Um, 
and and so there's protection for both the elders and there's protection for the sheep from our viewpoint however some things that we as we grew as an elder board at grace that we started doing um that i think was really helpful and maybe got to to a little bit it, it maybe helped with a little bit of the potential challenges as you grow is we would appoint or assign is a better word a subgroup of elders to go investigate something and then come back with their findings and men on the elder board could say give me a summary they've put in the legwork they've investigated they've come to a conclusion and the rest of the elders are they have their antennas up but they don't feel the burden of needing to know all the details that went into coming to that conclusion they trust the subgroup of men that have made that decision and their presentation and so they go okay but if there is something that they feel uh i'm a little uneasy can you explain this part and so it helps with some of that just you, you can't have 11 men chasing everything down independently and that's something that i think we we were learning and needed to learn and something we need to keep before us is weighing both the personal shepherding obligation before the lord of what you're accountable to with the i trust the other men and the work that they've put into this and i don't need to have every detail to be able to joyfully defer to their decision and not be intimately involved in it and and there's there's a tendency where you're i'm shepherding the flock i give account before the lord for this before i sign off on anything i want to know everything because i dare not do something that's sinful against the lord so there's a good intention behind that and i think as your elder board grows and the needs of the body expand you ha there has to be a sensibility to measure rightly the fact that you can't be in all of those decisions in the way that you desire. Tom? huge there was a, a period where um, I was discipling a young man and in close interaction with him wonderful servant sweet godly man and um, but very opinionated like the way I do laundry is the right way to do laundry and if you do it otherwise or the frequency I do the frequency I wash my towels is the right frequency and if you use it a towel more than once, gross. Oh, no, you got to do it the right way, my way. And young man, you know, learning those things. And it was like, if you ever want to be married, you've got to just have like a foundational change in how you think about your preferences. Like you just, and, and same thing as, as an elder. If you think every way you choose to do things is the right way, it's going to be a real hardship for anybody under your care. Um, well, a few last things as we wrap up. Great, great questions, good dialogue. One thing I do want to say about elders is there can be a tendency to elevate elders as a category outside of sheep, and that's just not fitting. Elders are sheep too, okay? They're elder qualified. They, they meet the qualifications. They have a role and a call, but I am a sheep in this body as well as a shepherd, 
And my shepherd is Tom and Tyler right now. Tom and Tyler as an intern. They are my shepherds and I need that. I need that spiritual care and encouragement. And so in that, as an elder, I don't get free reign to function on my own. I actually, I submit my life and my shepherding ministry to my shepherds. And Tom should do the same and Tyler should do the same. And so just just for clarity, there's no room. It's not something like, well, you're a sheep, but once you become an elder, now you're just under God's authority. You certainly are under God's authority, but I'm under the authorities of my shepherds as well. And I think that's an important distinction to recognize. Additional instructions for the church were called to care for one another in regards to sin. We'll go over that in more detail in a future lesson, church discipline and restoration. There are ordinances given to the church. We see that through baptism and communion, that believers are to be fully submerged in water as an outward uh, display of the inward work that God has done. Communion, the remembrance of the Lord and the Lord's table. There's a call to exercise spiritual gifts. We're called to do that. We're We're to use what God has given us for the benefit of the body. Maybe just some additional considerations, uh, things to ponder as we think through the church, uh, particularly thinking through explicit instruction versus individual freedoms. Uh, There's a lot of emphasis on what the church must be about versus what does the church have the freedom to be about? What what what, What must the church be about versus what freedoms do churches have to be about? What could a church be about? We're never able to compromise on what God says the church is to be about. But where it gets fuzzy or where it can even be discouraging, if if God has laid um, adoption on your heart or care for the homeless or social reform through government officials, if, if God's laid those things on your heart, you absolutely have a freedom before the Lord to go apply yourself to those things. Where it can get tempting is a tendency to want to take the things that I love and am passionate about, and these are good things, and I want people to join in these good things with me because look at the good that is coming from it. And there can be a good desire held to an equal or even elevated position than what you should hold it to. And so we need to be careful to not take our passions and our preferences and elevate them to what God says the church must be about. There must be a a temperedness in our thinking, a a sensibility or reasonableness in our thinking to take our passions and our desires, bring them before God's word and say, okay, how does this fit within what God says the church is to be about and what I'm to be about? Is there anything that would tell me not to be about this? Okay, then I have the freedom to go do that. If it falls within what the church must be about, great, let's be about it. If it falls into what the church could be about, present it and then trust the Lord with your elders. We can't do every good thing that we could do and we have to make decisions. What Are we being faithful with what we must do and what? how can those things manifest itself beyond the immediate for the benefit of where God has us? Church and missions, as we think through the church, what the church is to be about, discipleship, making disciples. Um, Obviously, uh, 
we, we've been talking a, a, about missions a little bit recently with, with the Twombly's and it's on our heart. We'll talk about it more, but uh, we want to commit ourselves to missionary work that proclaims the gospel, but also sticks things through to help those who profess faith in Christ be able to connect with the local assembly of believers. And so that's why you'll see much of our, our missions work is centered around church planning, church establishment, proclaiming the gospel, and, and, and not really a get in, share the gospel, they accepted Christ, get out, let somebody else figure out, help them figure out what to do from there, and, uh, and so on. So uh, we're going to end there. There's some questions at the end um, regarding trusting God's perfect wisdom and using imperfect means. And, and what do I mean by that? Listen, we're messy Every church is messy. We sin. There's sin in every, in every church. If you have not been sinned against at Gilbert Bible Church, it's only because we are very young and you haven't had opportunity yet. And it probably has happened and you don't know about it if you feel that way. It, it's just inevitable. We're going to sin against each other. We're going to hurt each other. And we need to persevere and forgive and reconcile and maintain peace and trust God's use of imperfect means, us, within his perfect plan to build up his people. Uh, there's a temptation to run away when we're hurt or when it's hard. And that's not, that's not the call from scripture. We need to persevere, care for each other. And uh, it's just tragic. There, there, there certainly is churches that one should leave. And there is a time for somebody to leave a church. Um, there isn't a time to not be a part of the church, a church. And so just keeping those things in mind and, and oftentimes the hurt can be so deep that there's emotional obstacles to re-engaging in a church because you feel vulnerable and it's going to happen again. And I invested all this and then I was hurt. Um, don't entertain those emotions. Do it anyway. Be a part of a local church. Trust the Lord. To not is to not trust the Lord with what he calls believers to be about. All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your church, and even just to ponder all these things is overwhelming, thinking about your intentional love and care for your people, and that you didn't call us to the Christian life only to have to navigate it alone. In fact, that would be tragic if we did that or tried to do that. And Lord, thinking about our involvement and our care and our service in the local church, and then thinking about what you did and your love and your service and your care for your church to give of your son for Christ to be crucified, for him to bear the wrath that we deserved out of love for his bride. Um, Lord, we just quite, quite honestly, we just don't love the church enough. How, how could we? Um, and so Lord, uh, we thank you for the commitment and love and care that is expressed. And we pray that you would grow it all the more to the measure that it, that it should be as we ponder uh, just your, your kind, self-giving love for your people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.